My name is Jordan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm really grateful that all of you guys came to celebrate Resurrection Sunday 2019 with us at Renaissance. Uh, for those of you guys who are new and uh, haven't been here for a while, one of the things that I hope you got from these stories that you saw uh, is that here at Renaissance, we don't pretend to have it all figured out. We don't pretend that life is easy. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's like it's a life with no problems, but rather that we are real people with real problems, and our hope is that we have a, a real Savior. That's what we want to talk about today. Uh, more particularly, today I want to talk about fear. Today I want to talk about fear. Now, fear at its core is a good thing. At its core, fear is baked into our DNA to keep us away from real threats. Our earliest ancestors needed fear to run away from saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths and all of that. Uh, fear is something that is good when it's appropriate. Uh, I'm sure that if you live in New York City, we all have some ridiculous, crazy subway story. Uh, if we pass the mic around, we'd be probably pretty entertained. My wife and I are magnets for absolutely ridiculous things happening on the subway. Um, I remember one time last year, I was sitting on a subway listening to music, and this guy comes on, and he just looked super angry. So I turned my volume down because it just didn't look right, and he starts walking close to me with his fist balled up. And he says, I am going to kill someone. And everybody else in the subway couldn't even hear him. They had their headphones in, and I was like, uh, this is it. <laughs> this is the moment where it goes down. And the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. Um, I don't have hair anywhere else. But, and immediately, this fear gripped me. And it was fight or it was flight. So I bowled up, rolled up my sleeves. I bowled up my fists. And I ran out of there. <laughs> I left my wife and kids to fight for themselves. Uh, fear is something that, in some cases, is appropriate. Some things should make you afraid and should have some effect on you. But where fear is dangerous and where fear should have no place in your life is when you're afraid of something that's not actually a credible threat. So many of us live with fear. I wonder if we're really honest, if we were to evaluate the decisions that we've made in our lives that are based not in reality, but based on fear. I know so many people like me that overload their schedules because you're afraid of disappointing other people. You don't know what they would think about you if you said no to coming to their third cousin's karate tournament. So you say yes and you go. Or you have a fear of being forgotten. So you overload your schedule with different things so that people won't forget about you. So you're not just saying yes because you wanted to go. You're saying yes out of fear. Others of you, uh, you have fears about taking public steps with your faith. Maybe you've been coming to Renaissance or another church for a little while, and you're starting to feel something happening in your heart, like you want to take more public steps, but what's holding you back is not your understanding of God. It's fear of what other people would say about you, that other people who might have known you doing different things would look down on you or think that you're a hypocrite. Uh, when I became a Christian in college, um, I went to Morgan State, uh, shout out to the Bears, and at Morgan State, we had what every HBCU had. We had a yard. And at 12 o'clock on Friday, on a nice day outside, the yard 
was packed. One of my friends uh, was a Christian, and he led a Christian ministry on campus. And every single Friday at noon, he would have a prayer on, on, right on the yard. After he had found out that I had become a Christian, he invited me to come out to prayer. And I'll never forget how nervous I was the first time walking out to the yard to be seen as someone who was praying. Here's what I was afraid of. I was afraid that someone was going to see me, someone who I had been wilding out with a month before, and say, look at this hypocrite. Jordan, you're out here praying. And my boy who was praying, he was African, so his prayers were mad long. I'm like, yo, we're not going to, everybody's going to see me. Some of you guys know what it's like, and maybe you're there right now, that the reason you don't want to take public steps with your faith, maybe it's getting baptized or whatever the case is, is because you're afraid of what other people will think of us. Fear guides a lot of our decisions. And here's another big one. A lot of us are afraid of God. Uh, for a lot of us, we think going to church feels like going to the dentist. It might be necessary in theory, but every time you go, you just expect bad news and pain. What is that that's controlling our minds as we even consider what it means to be in a relationship with God? It's fear. For others, uh, you might come on a Sunday, hands raised high when they're singing songs about the power and the presence and the grace of God, but then something happens on Monday, and then fear creeps in. And all of those praises and all of that boldness that you had on Sunday goes out the window. Now, if you have ever felt fear in your life, you and I are not alone. In fact, the earliest followers of Jesus had to deal with real fear. Specifically, when Jesus was getting crucified, uh, their lives were characterized by, by fear. Last week, we read one of the scriptures uh, that led up to Jesus' crucifixion. And one of the saddest verses in all of the Bible, Matthew 25 and 56, says that all of his disciples deserted him and ran away. Here's why they ran away. It says in John 20 and 19, it says, in the evening of that first day of the week, this is when Jesus' disciples were, they were running, after they had run away, it says, the disciples were gathered together with the doors locked because of their fear of the Jews. Let me stop there for a second. They were afraid that the same thing that happened to Jesus would happen to them, that they would be rounded up and killed. And then the Bible says this, then Jesus came stood among them, and said to them, peace to you. The Bible presents a miraculous claim here that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that resurrection is the thing that's supposed to eliminate our fear. Now, I don't know if you ever thought about where Christians got their strength or where the disciples got their strength in the early um, first century. It wasn't based on the amazing teaches, teachings that Jesus did. When they were locked away in fear, they didn't say to themselves, hey, somebody pull up their notes app on their iPhone and let's go back to that one teaching that was really dope. Uh, that wasn't what got them out of being afraid. It wasn't the miracles that Jesus did. They didn't say to themselves, you know what, we're afraid, but Jesus healed a leper once upon a time, so maybe uh, we can go out and not be afraid. It wasn't the teachings. It wasn't the, the miracles. They were afraid until they saw something. What they saw is what Christians have been uh, using as an antidote to fear for the last 2,000 years. It's that Jesus, who was handed over to be crucified, was also raised from the dead. 
And if God can raise him from the dead, if Jesus could be raised from the dead, then what do you and I have to truly fear? So for the last 2,000 years, men and women have been holding and driving this down in the stake as the pillar of their faith, the thing that made them confident even when situations look shaky. But if we're being honest, believing that Jesus raised from the dead or believing that anyone raised from the dead is not exactly the easiest thing to believe. Uh, in fact, many of the earliest followers had doubts. So if you have doubts about whether or not Jesus was raised from the dead, you are in good company. Some of Jesus' earliest followers had doubt, but then something happened. Now, whenever we talk about this topic of the resurrection, uh, I always kind of go back into my legal days, and um, I used to practice law for a little while, and as long as I'm paying off my student loans, I kind of have to keep on saying that, so until 2073, we're going to be hearing the same stories. <laughs> if you want to ever, like, check out whether or not something is trustworthy, you need to do two things, at least these two things. You first need to examine what is the credibility of the people that are saying this. Who is the person that is telling me this purported fact? Are they themselves trustworthy? Whenever we would cross-examine people on a stand, a lot of times I did juvenile delinquency law, and sometimes there would be co-defendants. One of the first questions I would ask them is, are you receiving anything in exchange for your testimony today? Sometimes they would say, yes, the prosecutor is not going to put me in jail at all in exchange for this testimony. They had a lot to gain. Now, it's never happened that someone has gotten in court and lied to put themselves into trouble. People lie to get themselves out of trouble. Nobody lies to put themselves into trouble. Here's what you see happening in the first century. Days after these disciples were scared, locked into the room based on their fear, something happens. And these same men and women who were absolutely terrified turned from cowards to courageous. It wasn't the teachings that liberated them. It was this belief, this, this, uh, uh, this claim that Jesus Christ, the one that they followed, was actually raised from the dead. And these men didn't just claim this to their benefit. It went to their detriment. Most of those disciples died a pretty terrible death. Uh, Peter was crucified upside down. John the Baptist, the guy who wrote some of the books in the Bible, uh, John the Revelator, who wrote uh, the book of Revelations and some other books, uh, scriptural tradition has it that he was boiled alive before being exiled. Why would you put yourself in that situation for a lie? And these men had families. Now, I personally, uh, uh, maybe it's because of the things I've seen, I don't feel like I am afraid of death for myself. What I am terrified of is that I would not be around to raise my sons. There's very little things on this planet that I would trade to raise them to be good, godly men. I would never trade that for a lie. The only thing that could have motivated these followers of Jesus, the only thing that could have made them turn from cowards to courageous was not a teaching. It was not something to hold. They had everything to lose, and they still said it. Many of these men faced, and women faced literal death, separation from their families, all because of this claim that Jesus was raised. Now, the credibility of the witnesses, I would say, is very high. The second thing, which we don't have time to fully go into, is the actual credibility of the evidence that's being presented. Is this stuff really reliable? Are the claims about Jesus in the Bible trustworthy? 
The Bible, among above any other book in all of antiquity, is miraculously well-preserved, and it includes so many details uh, that are corroborated also by other first-century historians. The stories of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus are not just in the Bible, but in other people like Josephus and Tacitus, non-Christian authors from the same time all say the same thing. There's these group of Christians that say that they saw Jesus raised from the dead. The Bible also includes really counterproductive details that let us know that they were actually trying to present the truth. One of those details is that the women that followed Jesus were all the first witnesses of his resurrection. In a society that really devalued the role and importance of women, they said that the earliest witnesses were, in fact, these women. Their testimony would not have even been admissible, but yet they say that's what happened. Why did they say that's what's happening? Because they wanted to include the truth of what happened. But still, I'm not going to go down a rabbit hole and talk all about uh, the Bible's claims. Uh, you guys did not sign up today for a class in apologetics. And if you do really, though, have more questions about the resurrection or the Bible, do us a favor. Email us at info at renaissancenyc.com, and we would absolutely love to have a, a follow-up conversation with you. But I want to close this segment out with this quote from this Japanese author by the name of Shusako Endu. And he says it like this, if you don't believe in the resurrection, you'll be forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet of equal force in its electrifying intensity. If we try to explain the changed lives of early Christians, we may find ourselves making leaps of faith as great as if we believed in the resurrection itself. What's he saying? If you try to explain how people's lives changed that dramatically and that instantaneously, you're going to have to come up with another theory that might be as difficult to believe as the resurrection itself. But the resurrection is something that has, for 2,000 years, been the antidote that Christians have been injecting in their veins against fear. And by the grace of God, it's going to release us from fear today. One day in the first century, there was a man named the Apostle Paul, and he's a famous Christian who wrote about half of the New Testament. Right near the end of his life, he writes a young letter, uh, uh, his final letter to a young man that he loves as a son, Timothy. Paul sees amazing potential in Timothy, but yet he sees one huge problem. Timothy is prone to timidity. His sincere faith in God gets weak and falters whenever troubles and trials come. Timothy is strong for a while, but then doubt sets in, fear takes over, and before you know it, he finds himself spiraling down into a spiritual slump based on fear. Paul sees this as Timothy's Achilles heel, so he writes Timothy's, Timothy these words to help guide him and to free him from fear. He says, Timothy, and by extension, he's, he's saying these words to us. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but one of power, love, and sound judgment. Paul loves Timothy so much that he pens one of the most amazing verses in the Bible a couple of verses later. Paul says, so don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or me, his prisoner, 
Instead, share in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God. He has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. This has now been made evident through the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Look at those words in verse 10. Paul is trying to get Timothy to not feel, to not feel the fear that is paralyzing him. So he says, Timothy, Jesus, the one whose hand you are holding, has abolished death. In verse 10, Paul is alluding to this thought. Think of the most intimidating enemy in this world. It's not an army. It's not an empire. It's not a plague. It's an enemy that wins every single time and has been on a consecutive winning streak since the Garden of Eden, death. Death defeats everybody sooner or later, rich or poor, uh, Christian or non-Christian. Death gets all of us eventually. And Paul is saying, Timothy, the one whose hand you hold has not just barely squeaked out a victory, but has demolished and abolished and destroyed the greatest enemy that this world has ever known. And if he has destroyed that, what are you afraid of? If he's holding your hand, why would you be afraid? If he is for you, as Paul says in Romans 8, who can be against you? Now, Paul uses this argument to Timothy, and it's been something that Christians for centuries have reflected on, that if God is powerful enough to raise Jesus from the dead, and if this God is for us, you and I have no reason to fear. Jesus' res resurrection rescues us from fear. It is real hope from a real Savior. Now, that argument was a game changer for Timothy and it was a game changer for Jesus' disciples, and it changed their lives. Now, to be perfectly honest, I'm very sympathetic to Timothy because in some ways I feel like I am also prone to fear. One of the fears that Timothy had is that this fear that he was inadequate. I don't know if you've ever felt that before, a fear that you're just not good enough. You've tried before to do good things, Make no mistake about it. You've, you've tried really hard to, to be better, to do better, but there's something about you that's just not making the progress that you want to make. You've made resolutions, whether in your walk with God or something else completely different, and you've made it three weeks into it. You vowed to never say that to your spouse again, and you did. You said you were going to be different this time, and you're not. I think if we were honest, there's a lot of us who wrestle with this feeling of being inadequate. Now, Timothy felt inadequate for a number of reasons. He was a lot younger than a lot of the other people around him, and it was a time where there was so much chaos in the church, and Timothy just felt like he had no place to be able to challenge anyone else, and every single time that an argument or something would, would break out, Timothy would kind of just shrink back because he didn't feel like he was adequate. Paul writes these words to Timothy to let him know that if God is for you, Timothy, if the Jesus that was resurrected is for you, who can be against you? In my own life, I certainly know what it feels like to be, uh, to feel and to fear that I am inadequate. 
But here's how uh, the resurrection is meant to free us from fear. It means that God in his greatness overshadows you and your inadequacy. The life of Christianity is not about you. It is about Christ. In 1 John 2, it says, My little children, I am writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. If Jesus Christ is alive, then he is our advocate. Better than Johnny Cochran in his prime, Jesus lives to intercede for us. So to anybody who is discouraged or fear that you are inadequate, the risen Lord Jesus never stops thinking of you, caring for you, feeling your sorrow, interceding for you, and guiding this world, this universe, right down to the very atoms towards your eternal advantage. If you've been in a driver's seat in your life, get out. Let Jesus take the wheel, quite literally. I remember when I would have clients who were really nervous before court, and I would say, listen, I don't know why you're nervous because I don't want you to say anything. <laughs> I know in your mind you have this great argument that you're going to say, but the reason you are paying me an inflated rate to sit here and stand next to you is because I am your advocate. When we get in a room, shut up, sit down, say your name, and don't say anything else. I got this. Here's what it means if Jesus is resurrected. Sit down. He wouldn't say shut up. He's nicer than me. Sit down. Be humble. And some of you got it. Because I got this. Jesus is our advocate. And if he is risen, that means you are never alone. It is never up to you. You know what? Other times I'm, I'm kind of a, afraid of failure. Uh, not just at my job or uh, sometimes I'm, I'm afraid of being a failure in my parenting. Even more scary than that, I'm, I'm kind of afraid of being a failure with my spiritual walk, especially when I'm not seeing as much progress as I, as I want to see. A lot of times I talk to people about their walk with God and they're just frustrated with themselves because they just can't see how to get ahead. Here's what the resurrection promises us. Romans 8 and 11, it says... And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you, then he who raised Christ from the dead will also bring your mortal bodies to life through his spirit that lives in you. Here's what this is saying. This resurrection power is real. And it's not just real externally. It's real and it's living on the inside of you. So you don't have to worry about your own ability to move forward. God has given you something amazingly powerful. What he has given you is not a bootleg spirit. Years ago, I went to, uh, when I was a kid, my brother and I would hop on a train and go to Fordham and, you know, go shopping. And there was a guy who saw us. I was like 10 years old. My brother was like 13. And he knew that we were suckers hopping right off the train. He walked up to me and says, listen, I just got fired from my job at Macy's. But on my way out, I took this beautiful gold chain. It's worth $700. But I'll give it to you for, how much money do you have? $10. There you go. I should have known something was off when he told me he was marking it down 10,000% in seven seconds of negotiation. I wore that chain with pride. You couldn't tell me nothing. Collar popped, chain on the outside of the shirt. This was the 90s, so it was different then. 
First week, you couldn't tell me nothing. Second week, it wasn't as shiny as it was the first week. I figured, you know what? Maybe gold tarnishes. I don't think it does, but maybe it does, and I had to keep on polishing it. And every time I would polish it, it would get duller and duller. And by week three, that joint was forest green. It was not anything near gold at all. Now, when I first saw that chain, it looked absolutely amazing. But here's the difference between the bootleg and the real. Real gold lasts. Bootleg doesn't. Here's what the scripture is telling us. You did not receive a bootleg spirit, which is not going to last. You did not receive a bootleg spirit that can't endure the elements. What you have received is the spirit of Christ, that same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead. And if you have that, that's all you need. And we get that based off of a promise that Jesus gives to us. Everyone who has placed their faith in Christ, that God promises that he will give us his Holy Spirit, not as something you earn, but as something that is a gift. Uh, on your way in, many of you should have received uh, a next step card. Uh, a next step card is something that we uh, have to, to start a conversation with people who are thinking about taking their next step in faith. One of the biggest obstacles people have is that they just don't know if they'll be able to make it, whether or not they'll be able to really see their commitment through. And here's what we're saying today. If Jesus has risen from the dead, he promises you that you will never be alone and it will never be up to you. If you're thinking that you want to start a conversation about what your next step of faith could be, please fill out that next step card and drop it off at the info desk on your way out and we would love to start a conversation with you. Lastly, I think that what a lot of people struggle with is fear of rejection. Fear of rejection. When you start to think about rejection, it boils down to whose opinion really matters. Whose voice about you matters the most? Whose opinion of you should matter the most? If the resurrection is true, this is what it's saying. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 28 and 20, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And if Jesus is good with you, why does it matter what anybody else thinks about you? His opinion of you should be enough. Years ago, I was representing my father-in-law uh, in a traffic case in Virginia. And Virginia don't play, man. They'll, if you go going one mile over the speed limit, they'll have you doing the chain gang for like three months um, so they were not playing around, and we first got into the courtroom, and the bailiff comes out, and he says, everybody who is here, even though it's a traffic offense, um, everybody here is facing jail time. And I was thinking, my wife and I had just gotten married, I was like, this would not be a good start to our marriage if I get her father thrown in jail. Like, this is not going to be a, a happy ride home, minus one. So I got to the court, and I started talking to the, uh, the prosecuting attorney. I said, hey, what kind of deal could we work out? He was unwilling to work out any deal. He says, we have him dead to rights. The police report is intact. We're not offering anything. Your best hope is that maybe the judge will have some leniency on you, but that's all I'm going to do. I, I went to the judge, and I said, Your Honor, um, I was asking for permission to, to appear before him. And I said, Your Honor, I'm just here from New York. I know I'm not uh, admitted to the bar in Virginia. I would just request permission to appear before you to represent my father-in-law. The judge looked at me. He says, take a step back. He called our case first, even though it wasn't first in the docket. Called my father-in-law's name and then just said, 
Case dismissed. Go home. I had no idea what was happening. I was like, yo, yo, we out. <laughs> you, get Keisha, get Keisha. Come on, we all out. We didn't even have a Keisha with us, but we told Keisha to come. The other attorney, the prosecuting attorney, was angry. He was confused, but guess what? His opinion didn't matter. The one with authority said we could go, so guess what? We dipped. If Jesus is resurrected, his opinion of you, his voice to you, his instructions for you, his care about us are the only things that matter. And when Jesus says for us to come, we should come. Heavenly Father, I am grateful that you are the only voice that matters and that you are the authority and your resurrection proves that it is to you we live and you we move and in you we have our being. We can trust you, Lord, as you have the final say. Father, I pray for courage for my brothers and my sisters struggling with a fear of inadequacy or failure or rejection, that we would see you, our resurrected king, and we would be free. I ask this in Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.